Welcome everyone back to the PD Pods cast. Um, it's the month of June and this month is uh, Global Clubfoot Month. And I really wanted to have a guest on who has driven forward the practice uh, within the UK. And the first name that came to my head was Miss Naomi Davis, who's based at the Royal Manchester Children's Hospital, is lead of the UK Clubfoot Consensus and sits on the Global Clubfoot Initiative or Alliance, and is also the clinical lead of the Northwest Children's Major Trauma Networks. We're going to have a lot, uh, a conversation spanning her career uh, and her how her sort of fields of interest have developed. And I really look forward to learning from her uh, during this conversation. So, Miss Davis, thank you so much for joining me. Yes, pleasure. So, as I do with all my guests, I'd like to firstly hear about their journey into orthopedics, a bit about their upbringing uh, and sort of what drove them into medicine what their training experience was like, and and then specifically how they got into paediatric orthopedics. Okay, um, so I was essentially brought up in Manchester, but my parents were the sort of original East End boy and West End girl from, from London, uh, but moved north uh, quite early on with my dad. Uh, my dad's job, he was uh, he had his own uh, car salesman um, and forecourt. Um, and body shop so he was a I always say he was a cliche in his own lifetime he's a Jewish used car salesman but he was so much more than that um, only child uh, brought up um, I guess to believe that I could do pretty much anything I wanted to do um, a, a thought that was uh, compounded by going to Manchester High where they totally tell you that you can do whatever you, you want to do uh, and a huge amount of uh, support from there and, and givers of confidence in that school uh, decided uh, a little strange little light bulb moment when I was about 12 and I thought well I like the sciences and I like doing first aid in brownies and then uh, guides so I'll be a doctor which at the time just seemed a completely logical way of working working things out. Um, and then a lot of people saying to me, oh, well, it's really hard. And me going, yes, so. Um, and of course, you know, the further down the line you get, the more that, you know, that four letter word doesn't begin to encapsulate what it's like to work um, in medicine, in surgery, and indeed in the NHS. Um, it, it's so much more than just hard. Um, but, you know, I had a goal, um, continued with that, um, went on uh, to, I was at Nottingham Medical School, um, came out, came back to Manchester, really. Um, both my parents were having some small problems with their health, and it was easier for me to be near home, um, and um, started came back to do an orthopedic job in Stockport with Phil Turner, who uh, a lot of people will know, and who hugely encouraging. So I was doing, um, I think I was, I was doing a major part of a knee replacement as a, as a senior house officer. Um, and he's always been really encouraging. Um, he, I've, I think, you know, my interest in paediatrics is longer standing than that. I've never thought it was fair that kids um, suffered in any way um, on, a, on, a, on a sort of very basic human level. Um, I don't think I was all, I always knew how to uh, put paediatrics and orthopedics together. If, if, looking back, it wasn't that much of a speciality uh, when I was going through training. Um, and it's always that little scary thing, isn't it? That, uh, you know, if, if, if I mess this up, I mess this up for a significant number of decades. But again, Phil announced it, uh, I think a Friday afternoon meeting 
without any discussion with me about this, that I was clearly going to go into children's orthopedics. And I thought, well, I suppose I better do that now then. Um, and that's that's where I ended up. So um, the first female consultant to be appointed in Manchester and everything that went with that, got some interesting tales to tell on that that are perhaps better for when the pubs open fully. And um, and that, and really the first one to be doing pure, just, just paediatrics because everyone else had sort of those combined adults and children's roles. Um, and they gradually let their adult work go and we became what is now just a big, beautiful paediatric specialist department at Royal Manchester Children's Hospital. And I have to say I'm very proud of our department. I think it's it's diverse. We've got four women, um, but not just that. It, it follows uh, pretty closely the diversity of the community that we serve. And um, I'm very proud to work with them. So tell me, during that sort of training period, um, uh, you sort of said Phil Turner sort of said you are going you, you're going to be a pediatric orthopedic surgeon uh, I mean obviously that that has its own sort of biases that we we can talk about but we, we don't need to get into that but you said there wasn't a pediatric orthopedics as a sub sort of subspecialty wasn't that well sort of sorted it, out at that stage? No it didn't feel that way everyone was sort of doing it as you know as a sort of subspeciality so if you think about who was doing what in Manchester there was nobody just doing and doing kids at that time and any, everyone had an adult practice as well so you knew that you could have an interest but not that it you know it could be your whole practice and in, and in fact I think that's changed you know when we've moved from we moved from Booth Hall and Pendlebury Children's Hospitals into um into our big beautiful Royal Manchester Children's Hospital we were effectively moving from that sort of district general attitude towards paediatrics so it's the kid give it to them um, instead of that sort of super specialization that's now come with every everybody being on site and being able to run those you know those complex children mdts that you can do in a, in a super specialist hospital it's brought huge depth to the subject and um and you know and some research to it and you, you've had i know you've had conversations with other people about um you know developing the research around it because you know, I thought when I went into it, oh, why don't I know this? Why haven't I got the answer to this? Somebody must know. I'll go and have a look. But in fact, nobody knew. And and the research that, that you know, um, early on my practice was based on was sort of single surgeon experience stuff. Um, and it's only now that we're really starting to get uh, that that wealth of, of evidence base behind us for, for what we're doing. I think it's a, I think it's fan fantastic. Yeah, and I think, you know, now, um, I mean, I always wanted to do paediatric orthopedics from very early on, but we are now seeing people from an earlier stage sort of wanting to pick paediatrics. Um, we get to treat all parts of the body, which is absolutely great, but then when you're in a specialist centre like yourself, you can niche yourself into a certain specialty. I currently work in a DGH hospital, so I see absolutely everything and anyone, but I'm linked to a tertiary centre, so that MDT feel really gives me the confidence to make those complex decisions and do things like shared care and, and all of that. But, you know, it is something where the Biscos is looking into as well about potentially setting up a DGH uh, subcommittee to make sure that the plight of surgeons like myself who are managing a whole community um, are, are not ignored and that, you know, there is diversity in the sort of committee of Biscos to ensure that those people are well represented just as the big academics are. Yeah, and I think we learned this early on when we first started. I mean, the Clubfoot Consensus Group was originally the uh, Ponsetti Users Group. Um, so, you know, 
changing what we put on the tin around all of that. But, um, you know, we at the time, you know, it's, it's all very well for me to start saying, well, you know, I'm fine. I work in a children's hospital. I've got a children's only clinic. I've got nursing staff that I've got trained in the Ponsetti method. Why, why can't everybody manage the way that I do? Well, of course, because most people are trying to manage club foot in the middle of a busy, you know, all ages fracture clinic or something like that. Um, and I think, you know what we've never really got quite as well spread out as we wanted to around around that and I, I think is what we're talking about with Biscos is having much more of that hub and spoke much more of that support so that you can look at your results you can get that extra training when you need it there's that reciprocal arrangement we still see uh, people in our you know people come to our clinic we still go to other people's clinic because you always learn something when you do that and that support is invaluable on both sides. Yeah, and I think we'll sort of get into that when we talk about developing networks for major trauma in paediatrics. But you mentioned their sort of uh, club foot practice. And obviously, you have you're, you're well known in, in helping train a huge number of practitioners around the country in the Ponsetti method. Um, when did you sort of get an interest in club foot? Um, and, and we didn't really touch on if you'd done any fellowships at all um, as part of your training back then. So I went to Posner in Vancouver in 2000 um, and um, I was thinking about my fellowship then. I um, I met the guys that I spent some time with in Toronto. I had a fairly, so I'd done a fellowship in Manchester for pediatric, uh, for pediatrics, but I, I had a, I had another one set up in Toronto that was foreshortened because my dad got ill um, and I needed to come back. But um, I went into one of those enormous ballrooms that they have in North America, of, of heaven knows how many people. And Dr. Ponsetti came and stood on, um, on, the podium you know next to the podium and I thought um okay what's this I hadn't really heard about him terribly ignorant at that time um but it, the first thing he said is as club foot is not a surgical problem and um you know there's this sharp intake of breath all the way around the room um but then he went on to explain it and that, that I, I didn't know until later that that was the meeting at which Dr Ponsetti met Shafiq Pirani and they started talking about his basis of the Pirani scoring and his Ugandan sustainable club foot project um and I couldn't get into the session on how to learn Learn how to do the Ponsetti method because I hadn't thought about it soon enough in advance. Takes me forward. I go for my consultant interview, and at the end of an interview, um, somebody says to me, "What new service do you want to start in Manchester?" Yeah. So again, not terribly well prepared for this. Don't follow what I do. I'm a really bad example. Um, not terribly well prepared for this. I said pulled it out of the back of my head, I want to start treating club foot non-surgically. Um, and uh, they sort of looked at me and said, yeah, yeah, right, that's been tried before and gave me the job anyway. Um, but then I had an opportunity, um, sort of, I think it was about four or five months after starting my consultancy to go out with actually one of our senior fellows to uh, Iowa to meet Dr. Ponsetti. And I spent a week out there um, in, never go to Iowa in January. Just, it's, just snow. And Iowa City's there's nothing to do in it. I mean, th thank heavens we have friends there now. Um, but I never thought it would be the place in the States that I would visit the most. But I went out there, spent a week with him, and he immediately put me on his list of um, uh, accredited practitioners, which came as a bit of a surprise, actually, because I didn't think I'd done that much. But I guess when you're in your late 80s and you see somebody do something once or twice, you feel comfortable as to whether they're going to be able to carry on and take it forward. So, of course, at that point, uh, at the same time, I met um, the late, great Fred Dietz, who became a huge mentor and, and friend uh, for years afterwards. And um, 
and you know his thoughts his his words still run through my mind almost every time I go into a club foot clinic uh, and face a problem <laughs> maybe I've not seen before um and um and it all went from there now we came back from that um, and it turned out that our fellow had uh, arranged to have a sort of Ponsetti training course in Manchester and then disappeared off into the blue. So I was stuck with some sponsors for a course um, and some speakers because he'd, he'd managed to get Fred and Shafiq uh, to come to the conference, but no organisation around it. So suddenly we're running the first Clubfoot com uh, conference or, or training course uh, for the Ponsetti method. And suddenly, you know, there's a whole community developing around this. And that first conference, people came very much to sort of sit in the back and go, I don't believe this. And then two or three years later, people are really coming to learn and take it on board. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting process from all of that. And, and thus we, we got a community of people interested in treating club foot in, in, so in the Ponsetti method. Yeah. And, you know, and the Ponsetti method is something that I was exposed to very early on in my training, actually very early on. And, uh, but it was always, uh, the best thing is to get your hands and actually learn how to do it by attending one of these training courses. And down in London, we have Denise, uh, you know, who works in Chelsea and Westminster, and she's just as much of a titan in pushing it forward, uh, along with a team uh, who works with her. But um, tell me, what is training actually involved? And obviously with the, the sort of GERF program that's going around where they're trying to say you need to be doing X number per year or whatever it is to be uh, safe and competent enough to do it. Should we be treating a minimum number per of patients per year, or should they be sent to a sort of like you said a hub and spoke sort of regional service where they are managed? But I, this is right. This is a conversation about networks, isn't it? And I don't think we're looking to mandate a particular number. Um, and and I think that's difficult. You know, there are you know your average district general hospital with its with its normal birth rate will treat will have five to six club feet a year that come into it. And you know it's difficult complex treatment that involves you attending a hospital um, and having a relationship with your local team and um you know in a way that almost no other treatment does you know to see a family and a child every week for the first five or six weeks to perform a, an operation under local anesthetic you know to get through all the compliance issues around the boots and bars and build that trust in that um you know it, it needs a, a a dedicated team but it doesn't need to be in a in a center where somebody has to get three buses and get lost five times on the way there uh, the first time they do it and and then wait for a long time so i think there are ways of being able to provide the service um but it's about ongoing training and i know you know when i first came back from iowa i went back to the books and the video pretty much every time i'd done a clinic um it is there is a huge amount of attention to detail that's required, not just for the casting, but you know the the, the breadth of conversations you have as the children grow, um, uh, as the children grow, is you know is extraordinary, and it gives you it gives you in the orthopedic world that complete overview um, of how you contribute to a child and family's life that you know is very special in paediatric orthopaedics and I would argue is why we're in it um, because it's not just about 
putting a hip in it's it's so much more than that it's so much more of a partnership with those families moving forward and and for me that's what gives me the joy but fred used to say it is it requires the same surgical attention to detail that you do for any operation and so the training that we try and take our trainees through is is very gradual Uh, gci now have got this lovely uh course that has been reviewed and tested and accredited by the royal college of surgeons that is very much about you know ensuring that everyone gets those finer details of what you need to do and understands it as you go through. Um, and it's it's very much, you know, as you're training someone, it's uh, watch what I'm doing, you try and do it. I'm going to give you some fine tuning. You're gonna get, then watch me again because you'll be looking at different bits of what you thought you needed to know the first time round. Um, and you grow into that. And I've seen, you know, I've seen some trainees just get it straight away and some that have really struggled with it. Doesn't mean to say those that have struggled can't be great Ponsetti practitioners, but they need to be very aware of the extra effort they need to put into it and, and maybe a little bit of extra training. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's rare that I, don't go back to my books at some point. And, um, and it's not just for the Ponsetti method, arguably it's for everything that we do, that we're continually, you know, ensuring our own standards. Um, and that's what GERFT is talking about, of course. Um, and it's a process to assist that. Um, so my next question is, um, obviously, as you mentioned, a lot of hospitals, you know, we have a very busy service for running fracture clinics where, you know, we've been pulled in all different directions. Um, and a lot of the practitioners that have now been trained in the Ponsetti method are not doctors. They are physiotherapists. They are clinical nurse specialists. Uh, is it I mean, in my practice, my clinical nurse specialist does all the Ponsetti um, casting herself? Obviously, I am responsible and I'm involved and I see the child uh, even prenatally, if, if if we pick it up on a scan early enough and follow them, and obviously I'm doing the tenotomy, but, you know, is, is that a safe way to go as well? I mean... It, well, it depends, doesn't it? So the, the thing is that if something's going wrong, it's going to come back to you. If you're not regularly manipulating and putting casts on, you're losing huge opportunities for understanding what what's going on with these feet. So the more I look at a club foot, uh, you know, we we this is an umbrella term that we use, isn't it, for um, you know for the shape of the foot. We don't understand the underlying diagnoses. We think there's a genetic link. It's likely polygenic. Um, it may well be polygenic with some triggers. Um, you know, it's incredibly complex, and we understand that. Um, you know, there are other diagnosable neuromuscular conditions that come with a, 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 a club foot diagnosis as well. So if you um, if you're not regularly looking, but you have to go in and deal with the difficult ones, you're less likely to understand them if you've not dealt with the simple the in, in inverted commas, simple ones. There are some very subtle differences in some of these feet that make you understand when a foot is going to be atypical. Um, so um, classically, you know, as, as we now say, an atypical foot is one that has a transverse crease underneath it, that the tightness is largely um, through the um, tender Achilles and in the, in the plantar fascia, so it's in that um, complex, rather than medially, they need slightly different treatment and slightly different standards. They make up a small percentage of our population, but of our club foot population, but a huge amount of the trouble. So the the a large number of the failures that we see are those atypicals that aren't treated appropriately. Now, 
you can go through this this standard treatment and in fact you know i mean this is why dr ponsetti wrote a paper on atypical or complex feet towards the end of his career because as more and more feet were getting treated as his method was being rolled out so we were encountering these you know this more of this small group and some more problems with them if you you know the standard treatment is 50 degrees and and, and then a tenotomy actually the detail is Taylor head covered anterior process of the osteocalcis out from under the Taylor head tenotomy. And that very subtle difference that anybody can understand, but we don't reg or we weren't regularly teaching is an issue. When I treat those sort of secondary tertiary referrals that come through to me that have the very swollen feet that are slipping casts, by and large, uh, we get them through in a couple of casts and a tenotomy. Whereas they've had, you know, I've had children come to me that have had one cast. Um, every week for a whole year of their life and not got to where they need to be. Um, and so I would say that you, you can do it that way if you can spot the problem and refer it on. If you treat them, if you treat all the club feet or have some involvement in treating all the club feet as they come through, then you might be in a position to be able to treat the really tricky ones. Let's, let's, let's talk about tenotomies because um, you know, there is a varying practice around the UK where tenotomies are done. I think most people now are doing them in clinic uh, under local anaesthetic, but there are still some people doing them under general anaesthetic as well. Any tips and tricks of how you do your tenotomy, uh, specific blades, how to ensure you get it properly first time? Because you know, it, I think sometimes when you find that they are slipping, it's because the tenotomy has maybe not been completed as well. So, and, and, and you're right, if, if, if the tenotomy, so what we say about the tenotomy is do it well, do it often. Um, and uh, certainly now um, amongst the bigger centres, we're doing an excess of 90% tenotomy rate um, and, um, and it is a full tenotomy. So tips and tricks. So um, the thing about a general anaesthetic, people feel comfortable because the child's asleep. The trouble is that your, your tenotomy that should take 20 seconds then takes the best part of an hour. Um, and Dr. Ponsetti used to do them under general anaesthetic until he nearly lost a baby because these are often very young babies. So, you, and, you know, you're taking time. Now, we used to do them in the anaesthetic room without an anaesthetic prior to COVID. So thank you, COVID. There was no time for us to do that. And we've finally been able to move our local uh, tenotomies down into the clinic. Um, which has been an utter joy. Um, and uh, I always said that anything we didn't do exactly as Dr. Ponsetti did was going to give us trouble. And, and sure enough, um, actually managing to get them down there has been fabulous. And it's just, it, it prevents that horrible buildup and that, because a lot of the fear for, for the family isn't around the tenotomy per se, it's around the anaesthetic. Um, and you can take that away from them. Um, tips and tricks. Yeah, cut the tendon, um, not the heel bone. I use, uh, and, and I have seen, I have seen the heel bone cut through on a on too many occasions. So feel for it. Go a good centimeter above it. Um, cut the full tendon. I use a tiny little beaver blade, and it's I've done it with a needle in the past actually when we've run out. So it's a fine little seven mil blade that. Um, really just leaves a pinprick. And then you know that you've got the minimal amount of scar tissue going into the back. Take it slow, take a nice deep breath before you start, make sure the baby's settled, make sure you've got enough people, you know, around you to support the baby, the mother, the father, um, and yourself. Um, and don't think that you have to do it quickly because the child's awake. Um, you know, th th just do it, just do it with care, make sure it's all done nicely. And if you need to go back in to get that last little bit of, bit of tendon to be absolutely happy that you've done the job properly, then do it because that's your best moment to do it. Um, mm. And 
the other thing, it, it, we don't just get children slipping out of plasters that come to us um, that need a couple of casts and a tenotomy. We get some of those children that haven't had a tenotomy that just never settle into the boots and bars because their their foot isn't the right shape. Um, that just doing a simple tenotomy properly um, allows them to settle and, and go through the treatment. So um, it's what we say is, you know, it's the manipulation and casting and the tenotomy and the boots and bars, all as important as each other, and again, need the same attention to detail. With regards to boots and bars, there are some other um, orthoses that are on the market now and are being advertised as, you know, this is a, a one-sided foot, you only need to put one on it. Um, I'd like to hear your opinion on, on that. And also the stats that you quote to your parents to ensure you have expressed the importance of compliance or adherence okay so um there's no evidence for the unilateral braces good or bad at the moment um the evidence for the boots and bars is um 60 plus years every time i look at my results and try to find out what makes a difference to outcome and we tend to use roy scores for outcome amongst other things um everything is trumped by the boots and bars um so it doesn't matter what my Okay, so, you know, my tenotomy rate has increased over the years. Has that made a difference to my recurrence rate? No. Um, you know, does prenatal counselling make a difference to the recurrence rate? No, it is all down to the use of the boots and bars. So there is nothing more important than that. The rates I quote are, um, are, my, are my own personal audit um, and um, some from other areas. So Dr Ponsetti, when he increased his boot use from two years to four years, reduced his recurrence rate from 40% to 20%. That's in a very select population, but that's what it is. If I look at my best boot wearers, so the ones where I've not had any inkling at all of any boot problems, apart from a day when they had a horrible temperature and they left them off for one day, um, that recurrence rate is still 17%, 17%. So it's still not zero because it can be really depressing when you've brought a family through really good boot usage. You take them out of the boots and bars at five, which is what I do now because it does reduce the recurrence rate a little statistically. Um, and I can go back to those figures if you like, um, that, that, that then they have a recurrence. And I think these are the, you know, these are the really nasty uh, again in inverted commas club feet that have been kept completely under control by the boots and bars you let them out and they just start to flick into supination a little bit so still a recurrence rate same as dr ponsetti um even after good boot usage without the boots and bars so any inkling of problem with the boots and bars and there's a beautiful paper by uh science um that came out that said if a family's telling you they're it's on for 12 hours, it's probably on for eight, and that's probably okay. If they're telling you it's eight, it's probably on for five, and that's not okay. But even if you've got no inkling of trouble, and sorry, even if you've got any inkling of, uh, of a problem, then my recurrence rate shoots up to about 60%. Um, and that's high. Now, um, GERFT came round to us, and I was told that was high. I think I'm, you know, it would be easy for me to say all sorts of reasons behind that. Um, but, you know, with the boots and bars, I've got a perfectly reasonable recurrence rate. But without them, we've got some trouble. Um, and um, we've looked at all sorts of things um, around uh, our, the deprivation index um, of our families. And certainly, um, if you if you come from a deprived area, then your likelihood of being able to comply with the boots and bars is, is lower. Um, the pandemic has brought us, I suspect, all sorts of trouble just beginning to start to uncover that some some of these boots and bars were just abandoned at the beginning of the pandemic we've got children um with, with 
far reduced activity levels. Any any child in a splint has not had shoes on because they've been in the house and they've not been wearing splints either. Um, and there's a whole load of work for uh, for the pediatric orthopedic surgeons coming through, I think. Um, so, um, yes, so those are the sorts of conversations we have. The other conversation we have with families is around um, the peak crying period in babies, which if you look um, at the evidence, you get a peak of crying in any child, although there's a range um, at around about the eight week mark and, and just beyond. And that of course is exactly the time that we're putting our children into the boots and bars. Um, now, I have no doubt that children are fed up with them um, and don't like their feet tying together, but um, some of this is about training. Um, and um, so we, we talk a lot about, you know, getting, getting into a routine and the child not training the parent to take the boots and bars off by crying, all, all of the stuff that um, will be pretty much second nature to you. Um, and, um, but it is interesting that that peak of crying is just at that point now um there's nothing we can do about that we could delay treatment until they're down the other side of it but then as we found out through the pandemic we're then putting the casts on at the peak of the crying period and that isn't pleasant either um and so but we know the method works so sticking with it definitely the way ahead now obviously you mentioned covid there and you know it did it has impacted you know the management of these patients where we were told we just couldn't see them face to face um, and, you know, minimise foot traffic within the hospital. And there were some patients coming to us months later, but, you know, you, yourselves had, um, and with Biscos had, you know, published some, uh, some guidance for people who are doing the Ponsetti method to say that's okay. Um, but that there has obviously been some problems, as you're sort of mentioning. Obviously, with potential future lockdowns happening in the future and this being an issue, how do you feel uh, we can manage this group of patients? Should they still be coming in? despite just to get it done with and what sort of challenges have you found um i think i think we should i think treating those older children i mean i started on the older children so when i first started uh tiny clinics by comparison to what i had now i was given the patients that were on the surgical waiting list so i was getting them at seven or eight months old so um I wouldn't advise anyone to start with that age group, but that's that's where we seem to be again now for a moment or at least a little bit older. And I don't think it has been pleasant. And I think if this happened again, I would push for the babies to be treated in the normal time frame that we would. So within the first two to four weeks, because it is harder treating them when they're older and bigger and kickier and cryier and chubbier. And, and, and I think that has brought its own problems. So I've got a cohort of patients that are just coming out the end of that. Um, I also, I, I worry for the children because, you know, recurrence of the deformity uh, wasn't considered urgent, um, but as I don't think we imagined just how long we were going to be restricted in terms of our access to theatres and having children coming through um, with worse deformities than we would have liked to have treated them um, is, is a real problem. And I worry that a tendon transfer on its own isn't going to do the job and potentially we're committing them to, to bigger bony surgery later on. We won't know for a while, um, but that is the worry. So um, with your relapsing feet that you get referred to as a sort of tertiary practitioner, what, what is your, obviously you assess the foot, and, and but what is your typical approach to a foot that's relapsed, you know, once they've come out five, six, seven years of age? 
So for, you know, for an otherwise, un, you know, for a child without underlying conditions, um, we would, uh, you know, our, our standard treatment is uh, tibialis anterior tendon transfer. So it's a full transfer into the lateral cuneiform with or without uh, Achilles tendon tenotomy or lengthening. I do a tenotomy up until the age of six uh, and then a Z lengthening beyond that. Um, I think our colleagues um, with, you know, in low and middle income countries who are treating recurrences have, have told us that, and taught us that we can do tenotomies older than we think we can um, and in, indeed they heal very nicely and again with with minimal scar tissue so um, I'll do that that's that's my standard procedure um, I do need to check that their tibialis anterior tendon works before we do that it's not uncommon to discover that they that some of these children lack good active dorsiflexion and transferring the tendon at that point is is not going to work it's that lovely little test um that tickle test to check that the great toe uh, extends as a baby that i think um is really good guidance for how children are going to take their pathway through um but yes by and large um tibant transfer if it's more difficult than that i will probably still do that as a first procedure and see how far we'll get with that and how much improvement that'll affect before doing anything else, trying to leave anything until they're nearer the end of growth, really. Um, so I've, I've seen, you know, um, closing wedge, um, uh, distal tibial osteotomies done in two and three year olds. And you and I both know that if they'd had a fracture that was displaced by 20 degrees, it would be, you know, they'd grow it out. And sure enough, you've, you've wasted an osteotomy. So we just need to be sensible about this and, and make sure that we're not continually operating on children um, when they don't need it. And patience is, is a virtue. Some of these children do extremely well. Um, and giving them, you know, getting them to the point where they can understand, well, you know, they're doing reasonable levels of activity, um, that you've supported the foot until they can, you know, until they've got the level of coordination that they need and um, to be able to support it themselves is really useful. And some of them do extremely well. And we've had, you know, all sorts of high level sports coming out of kids that you've, you'd have looked at their feet as a two or three year old and gone, oh, my goodness. Um, so there's the end kept away from doing really big interventional surgery through that. Tell me a bit, obviously you, you're still on the UK Clubfoot Consensus Group, um, the Global Clubfoot Alliance. There's currently a Delphi Consensus as part of Biscos going on that Sally Tennant is heading up from Stanmore. Where do you feel research and future development should be focused on for the management of Clubfoot? Um, what I tend to say rather glibly to families is we, you know, this is one of the conditions we do know how to treat, um, but we don't know what causes it. So I think there is still that, um, you know, is there, a, is there a prevention area to this that we've not come across? I think that's probably a long shot, but I think we are understanding more about the causes of it. And that'll be interesting. You know, as we map the genome, we're getting more and more information out of that. Um, I would love to be able to spare children the boots and bars. I really would. Um, the unilateral braces just don't seem to be rocking it um you know I, I as I say I'm still waiting for decent research on that um but yes if we could if we could find a way of maintaining correction differently that would be glorious um but if somebody knows where to start with that it's it's for, it's somebody else's career lifetime I think not mine but that'd be great and in the show notes for this, I'll, I'll put the uh, website for the Club of Consensus Group and any future sort of courses. I'm sure hopefully there'll be some face-to-face -face courses uh, starting up in the next few months. Yeah, the GCI link should work well as well. 
Okay, and final question with regards to Clubfoot. Um, do you perform DDH screening for those patients with the use of ultrasound? Um, yes, I do. Um, I, I've looked at all the literature, which comes and goes, um, but the thought of having a child with undiagnosed DDH in my Clubfoot clinic and under my surveillance is um, not a pretty place to be. So they all get an ultrasound, yes. Fantastic. Good. Moving on. Let, let's talk about um, major trauma networks and pediatric trauma. And a lot of your effort has been sort of focusing this. You are the clinical lead of that uh, sort of major trauma networks in the Northwest. So tell me why, why was that something that needed to be done? And what have you seen the development be um, in the delivery of, you know, good trauma care for children? <sighs> Um, so you'll know that uh, trauma care for adults um, and for the whole population was lagging behind uh, compared to the states. We've, we've sat on information about trauma care that, that hasn't been good for a very long time. Um, the uh, details for the paediatric um, major trauma centres came out slightly later than it did for the adult centres, um, but centralising care for them so that you've got all the care that you need for the multiply injured child now seems the obvious thing to do, doesn't it? So that, you know, why would you take a really badly injured child to the first place where they're going to struggle to do a CT scan? They haven't necessarily got a neurosurgeon on site. Um, you've got, um, you know, where was, where was the eye, the pediatric eye surgeon that you needed to be able to deal with whatever other injury was going on? You know, you can, you can list the things that you wouldn't have in a DGH that might be the nearest place to any accident uh, and uh, getting the child to um, those centers um, has proven, has been proven to um, improve improve outcomes. So the um, the W scores, so the measure of, of deaths, of, of unexpected deaths has Im have improved across the board. Uh, this is for NHS England because the Scottish and Welsh, Welsh and Northern Ireland services are, are behind a little, but able to learn from, from our mistakes, I think, early on. Um, but, um, you know, we are saving lives and hopefully improving outcomes. Um, those are more difficult to measure from a diverse group of patients with diverse injuries. Um, but it's been a fantastic innovation. It's been one of the best things to be involved with. You know, mandated change uh, driven by good leadership um, from NHS England by our National Clinical Director at the time from Chris Moran. Um, absolutely stunning. Um, and it's been a, a huge joy to be involved with it because there were you know really sensible standards set we had a part to play in terms of setting slightly different standards for children um, as you can imagine there have been so there were some interesting conversations early on around that but it also ensuring that the standards were children specific when they needed to be um, and um, you know not letting people get away with saying well we'll do this for adults first and, and we'll see how it goes and then we'll bring it on for for the children's services and us going no that's not the way it works go we'll we'll have it for children please uh, and take that forward um and if you're not going to do that then we'll do it uh so keeping keeping children's services uh on the agenda um has been very important in the what what is it it's nine years now that we've been running the network and um the governance around the service has been um beautifully constructed really and I think has stood the test of time and we've been fortunate to have peer reviews as well to to support all of that and to drive standards up so um, it's all come from a good data set so Tarn have driven 
uh, have, have been a part of it and been able to drive those standards forward. Um, we've had you know, the regular dashboards from the data so that we know the, how we're doing. The dashboards are flexible. So when, you know, when standards are being consistently met, we move on and change the criteria of the dashboard to, to try and hit the next targets and develop the service further. Um, and so you know, you've got fabulous data set, a well-constructed network, uh, networks, uh, a group of uh, committed clinicians across the board, and it's been really wide the involvement, um, you know, from from the front door all the way through uh, into the community, um, and uh, it has, I think, set the example for networks, um, which has been a great success. Obviously, this was tested most on the 22nd of May 2017 with the Manchester Arena bombing. And, you know, you yourself and your department had a huge role to play uh, in that. And I know you've spoken about this before, but I think it's important our listeners sort of hear a bit about that um, and what role the pediatric orthopaedic surgeons played on that night. Um, obviously, it was it was an evening thing. This was something that was targeted to hurt children. So there's a huge amount of emotion in there. But I've heard your story before. Why don't you talk about how you got that first message and what your role and ended up being on that day? Um, well, it's probably reasonable um, to just go back a step and and um, to the sort of atmosphere that was going on. So Paris, had, the Paris attacks had just happened. Um, we knew that Paris had what we they called a white plan, which was a whole city plan for managing a major incident like that. Our um, plans hadn't been updated. Um, since the instigation of the major trauma networks. So the major incident plan still said nearest hospital first. Uh, we came out of Paris, the uh, Paris debrief with uh, Prof Moran saying, I need you to go back to your local areas and make a plan. So we sat on the train going back, a group of us from Manchester, both adults and children's services, with a lot of people saying, well, it'll never be a problem for children. And me going, does anyone remember Dunblane? Um, you know, and just to try and ensure that again, pediatric services were were on the agenda. Um, so we went back with the plan, um, and that was what that was 2015. We had just done our first major incident practice six weeks before the arena attack. We had the learning from that, but we hadn't published the learning from that. I personally learned that although my priority may be the open fracture and I want to get that into theatre straight away, if I do that, I won't have theatres available for the head injuries that come in. Um, so we, we'd had all that, that was just you know a bit of my learning. Everybody had some learning from that. Um, and so when the call came, I wasn't actually on the on-call rotor at that point. I'd come off it uh, earlier that year, but I knew the plan was in my head. So got up and came in along a very quiet road at, um, that had just had the speed limit reduced. So the Princess Parkway is a major, one of the major, <laughs> roads into town just had the speed limit and then there's me going 30 miles an hour going there doesn't appear to be of course all the police were somewhere else I don't know what I was thinking anyway arrived into the A&E department and was greeted by a whole load of people that had done that exercise with me huge relief for everyone so we knew we knew what we were doing um, we called in half our orthopedic staff um, conveniently it turns out that half of our team sleep with their phones by the bed and half of them don't uh, so that worked out quite nicely um, but we knew we would need people to be fresh in the morning so this is around midnight and we knew that we'd need a second team in so um, we they 
I took the role of surgeon commander, so it wasn't me operating, but my colleagues were doing that. And we put two consultants of each variety in each theatre so that nobody was operating on their own, which speeded things up. Um, we did need to do a little bit about damage control uh, to know that you do the minimum uh, and, and get the child out. And then we had um, two plus weeks of um, that was pretty much all we were dealing with. Um, uh, two meetings a day for the acute care, meeting a day for the re for the rehabilitation. Um, mo most of our elective work stopped. Um, and of course, all the visits, both clinical and non-clinical, um, to manage through all of that. It was a, yeah, it was, it was, it was challenging and tiring. Um, but I think I said this at the time that it, I really, I, I saw people at their best. I saw the, the NHS at their best. And I saw people really understanding, you know, what had driven them into, into healthcare in the first place um, and doing anything for each other. Um, at, a, at a point when really, you know, we, we have them all the time, don't we, in the NHS slumps and, and people feeling disheartened and, and undervalued. Um, but every, everybody got it um, and, and were there and pulling their weight in, for whatever was needed and that was was lovely to see and it lasted for a really long time afterwards and in fact the you know the motto of the hospital came out of that um, which was our, our family caring for yours because it did feel like one big family working together lovely yeah and obviously you know as part of all of this it almost helped get you to highlight the importance of rehabilitation in these families and the way these paediatric trauma affects children and families psychologically. So it's a nice segue to start talking about rehabilitation. And, and, and obviously Biscos this year, which was supposed to be held, held in Manchester last year, and unfortunately was delayed and had, we had a virtual format this year. You know, that was the theme was, was this. Um, tell me, because uh, we're now three, four years down the line uh, from that day, Tell me about how and what has happened really with regards to you know trying to gun the change with paediatric rehabilitation. So we had a bit of a plan before that, as you can imagine. So uh, alongside all of this, back in 2015, we'd started working on uh, paediatric rehabilitation really after any acute event. So the um, Anthony Prudhoe, who's the co-chair of the Women and Children's Programme of Care Board, had asked us to look at it um, and to, to work out how we were going to manage paediatric rehabilitation. Now, some people will say paediatric rehabilitation exists. Um, paediatric neuro rehabilitation exists. And um, community paediatricians are very concerned with neurodisability and the management of that. But there's that huge gap of everything below the head um, that doesn't really get the attention that it needs. And, um, you know, we think, don't we, that, you know, we can fix a femur and that's it. The child's fine. But likely they're not. That child that got that, that injury from running across the road can't cross the road anymore. Their parent won't let them out of the house to go into school. Suddenly, we've got a child that's missed significant amounts of schooling and their activity levels have gone down and their reintegration. And so, you know, vocational rehabilitation for children is getting them back into school. That's their job. Um, and, you know, and all this can fall away from what we think we've sorted out with, with the quick flexible nailing. Um, and and that's what we're trying to address what became really clear early on is that health and education do not speak the same language so they look we'd sound like it's all English but I've, I've sat with educationalists and, and uh, around the table and gone 
I understand the individual words, but it it just doesn't make sense. And so um, what we've what's been one of the big movers for us is the school fit note in that the healthcare provider provides education with a really good guide as to what a child's limitations are, how long those limitations are going to be, and supports the school to do the risk assessment to get the child back into school. Because that's usually the problem. You know, when somebody's had a sprained ankle and um, if you ask them whether they've been to school or not, they'll say, no, they won't let me in with the crutches. Um, and that happens over and over and over again. And if they do get into school, they're sitting on the sidelines. So, um, you know, for the younger kids that are supposed to sit on the floor, they're not sitting on the floor, they're sitting on a chair, so they look different. Um, in, in a P class, they're not even starting any participation with that. If they're, they're either doing the scoring or they're in the library. And that separation and that inability to access all the stuff that's going to make them feel good about things again is taken away from them because health and education can't have a conversation. So a simple piece of paper, which takes some effort to fill in, actually, but uh, we have a short form as well, but takes some interest in uh, the needs of the child and the needs of the school and the, you know, what the school can provide um, can bridge that gap. And sometimes it's as simple as knowing that you can you know, someone will pay for a taxi to get your child into school. And sometimes it's far more complex because you're dealing again with the with the cohort of children that are having serious injury. Again, you're dealing with kids from from the deprived areas. And in fact, a lot of them are poor school attenders to start off with. But then you've got an opportunity to actually lift them up and take them back to a better place than they were in before. And that's a lovely thing as well. So you can support that family and that child into a school relationship that they'd never had before uh, by moving that forward. Take us back to the arena attack, all this stuff is being put into place and suddenly we've got the Greater Manchester Combined Authority coming to us and saying we need to do all we can to support these children back into their home because some of them have come from a distance away and, um, and back into school and we've got the beginning of a solution to that at that point, which um, as the um, as legacy work uh, Greater Manchester have taken on, and uh, we've now got um, a what's now where are we? So three year project um, that's been moved on to um, replicate this for all the children that have um, that those types of serious injuries uh, within Greater Manchester for the moment. So in January of 2020, when we presented the work of the school fit note at the um, National Major Trauma Meeting, um, that it was about to be taken uh, to the Department of Education and the Department of Health to be mandated, um, and then COVID happened. So we still have that job to do and in fact on Friday I think I'm having that very conversation with uh, the, the new uh, national clinical director because that was one of the promises that we wanted that the school fit note will be mandated but if you start to have that conversation with your more simple fractures in the fracture clinic and start to think realistically about what does return to activity mean um, uh, you find out that in fact in terms of guidelines of when kids can go back to activity, we probably don't have a good idea of that. Um, you know, we're guessing, aren't we? We do things in two week aliquots. So that'll be six weeks. That'll be 12 weeks. You can go back in a couple of, you know, it, it's that sort of, you know, finger in the wind sort of view. So there's a lot of work to be done around that return to activity. I think we'll get a lot of the information from the kids that push it. 
you know, because you'll you'll have some families where you say, no, you can't do that for six weeks and they'll stick with it. But you'll have some kids that are just off and out there and you'll realise that, in fact, they're fine weight bearing at three or whatever it is. Um, and we need to somehow gather that information and get kids back to having the lives that we want them to have, which takes me back to my reason for wanting to do kids in the first place. It's not fair that kids aren't having a happy, active, healthy life. Um, and I think we can do more to support them back into that after both major and minor injury. Yeah, I think, as, as you said, there's a huge amount of work there to be done to sort of help standardise what what we tell parents and, and help. You know, like you said, if, you know, we get a girl who says, when can I go back to doing gymnastics? Well, you fractured your tibia. It's going to be X amount of time. But she could well go back four to six weeks earlier than that. Um, I do walking hip spikers for my femur fractures in younger patients. And what I've noticed is that the bar, in fact, six out of seven that I've probably done in the last year have all walked by four weeks on their broken leg. Whilst before you would have said there's no chance of it happening up till six weeks. So, you know, we're starting to innovate and do different things. But as you said, a huge amount of research to sort of go in. Um, let's move on finally to uh, talk a bit about diversity in surgery. And, you know, you mentioned when you were the first uh, female appointed consultant in Manchester, there was lots of tales to tell, but obviously this is a conversation that we are now having more and more in, in 2021. Um, and there was a recent report from the Royal College of Surgeons, a, a diversity in surgery report that was commissioned by the current president, Professor Neil uh, Mortensen. And you were part of our uh, esteemed uh, sort of faculty on a, a clubhouse room we did recently on this report. Um, obviously it, the reason for doing it was to help challenge discrimination and champion diversity within surgery in general. But um, as we know, the BOA is doing something very similar with Professor Eastwood taking hold of that, especially as she comes into a presidential year, and also uh, took a large part of our BISCOS 2021 meeting as well. Uh, tell me, and I know you're involved in some uh, women in orthopedic groups, so tell me why is this uh, a conversation we need to be having the importance of it and where what we can do to address uh, the issues that are being brought up. Okay, I, I need to start with an apology. Um, I've spent 20 years thinking that if I was good enough, that I'd be fine. And, um, you know, it would happen by, how stupid am I? It would happen by natural progression that, you know, when people got to understand that women have a huge contribution to make, that it's different, it's not the same, uh, but it's still, you know, <laughs> It's still valuable, for heaven's sake. You know, we give a huge amount. Um, that you know, that natural assimilation would would just go on, and and it hasn't. It horrifies me that you know, when twenty years ago um, I became a consultant, we're still having those same conversations, and nothing's changed. And that the percentage of women in orthopedics has barely grown in that period. So we're still sorting at what six, seven percent, and worse than cardiothoracics. How how can we be worse than cardiothoracics? Doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and um, it, you know, I, I, I've seen you know I've seen the Biscos report come through and the response to that. Um, now we've got the RCS report. We've seen you know the activity from the BOA and. And there's a lot of evidence out there, and I, I don't think I particularly know what the answer is. I think we still need to keep having the conversation. Um, we've talked a lot about mentoring um, and, um, you know, women having female mentors is one thing. But I would say, and I think other people agree, how much more powerful that women are mentoring men. Because if we really are going to have that cultural change, and it's, I know it's not just about men and women, but if we're really going to have, it's the, it's the bit I know, if we're really going to have that cultural change, that's how it's going to happen. When 
men are comfortable having women as mentors and I know some of them are and I've got a, men, a mentee myself who's absolutely fantastic he's 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 a wonderful guy um, and I see some superb qualities in him I and mean, I don't think I'm changing his mind at all but there are some minds that need to be changed and I was I was shocked over the last few years just to come across relatively young orthopedic surgeons dare I say it, so unreconstructed so still you know wanting to whose whose raison d'etre was to lay steel um that you know if 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 they had trainees that didn't turn up on time that that was their problem and they weren't going to get to operate no inquiry and I think you know this isn't just for women but no inquiry at all as to why you know, a, a trainee wasn't into work on time before you beat them around the head. I, th I don't think it's just a male and female conversation. I think it's a, a bigger conversation about being nice to each other. Um, and that sounds simplistic, but we are do still seem to be struggling with this. Um, and that old attitude that, you know, oh, well, it was good enough for me isn't going to rock it anymore. It wasn't good enough for you. It potentially turned you into somebody that doesn't treat people very nicely and that's not good enough um, and we are a caring profession and it's not just our patients that we have to care for we have to care for each other as well I'll take you back to that this is hard and there are aspects of it that are less hard if you've got colleagues and trainers and trainees in a team that are all supporting each other and that goes to the wider um, care group as well so that's the same for the nursing staff and our AHP colleagues and our porters and our cleaners that we treat each other with respect as one team as one family uh, surrounding the care of the people that we care for um, and if we're not treating our, each other with respect then it, it just falls down the line and it won't do. Yeah, and I like what you said about mentorship there. And, you know, it's been proven, basically, that if the highest quality factor in attracting people to a subspecialty, to a fellowship, to essential happiness and joy in their work and reduces burnout. Lastly, you know, you've contributed so much, even in your last 20 years as a consultant. How have you balanced a life? What, what do you do to sort of wine down at the end of the day, I'm sure a glass of wine is in order, but you know what, how, because this is something, burnout is a big deal. COVID, the endless uh, plight of COVID and uh, workload and expectations and everything like that, that, that is a big cause for burnout. And I think that's another conversation we're having a lot more now as well, which is good. Um, but I always ask my guests, you know, what do they do to relax? Because maybe there's something we can learn from each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think it's interesting. I'm, and I'm talking about this more is that around about five years ago, and in fact, the reason I came off the on-call road is because I found myself in tears going into work uh, one day and thought this isn't good. Um, you know, whatever's caused it, whether, you know, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't in a position to be able to analyze it on the spot, uh, but I knew I needed to take some, some time out and I did. And I took, I, I took about four weeks out just to, just to get myself back on track. Um, and, um, and I think it's important to be able to recognize that and to feel supported in, taking the time that you need to do that. And I think it's common. It's common in middle age, um, certainly happened to me in what we might call middle age for me. Um, and um, I think there's, there is a stigma attached to that. Um, and I think it would help if we didn't have such a stigma attached to it. Um, arguably, I'm not very good still. I, I, I still take on a huge amount of stuff. So, um, 
you know, presently chair the synagogue um, and trying to uh, and sort out all of that, all of what that means. Um, I, what do I do? I knit, I sew, I ride a bike. Turns out I fall off my bike. Um, I try and play the piano, I'm not very good at it. Um, you know, so there's, there's a huge amount of stuff um that I, I i do in my spare time i don't i don't have enough time for it i'm clearly on holiday doing a podcast which in itself is probably against some rule or other um and um i have an extremely patient husband well i think on that note we should end the podcast and get you back to your annual leave i'm really grateful to you for being so generous with your time with me today we've covered a huge spectrum of conversations from the man management of clubfoot to your role in uh, helping set up the major trauma networks for children your role as surgeon commander back in 2017 and how you sort of helped with uh, addressing the needs of children in rehabilitation specifically with regards to um, managing with education and obviously getting to talk a bit about diversity and burnout as well so thank you so so much for joining me today it's been a pleasure to have you thank you